online. This is Radio 3. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's Money Talk on Radio 3. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the 24th of May. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines. U.S. President Joe Biden continued Monday his first Asian tour since becoming president that has taken him to South Korea and Japan. Stability on the Taiwan Strait was among the regional topics discussed by President Biden and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida during their bilateral talks in Tokyo. Yesterday, President Biden said the U.S. was willing to use force to defend Taiwan if attacked. China's foreign ministry said that the Taiwan issue is a purely internal affair for China on issues touching on China's core interests of sovereignty and territorial integrity. China has no room for compromise or concession, it said. On Monday, whilst in Tokyo, President Biden unveiled his administration's new 13-nation US-led economic organization in Asia called the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum, which is part of a plan to counter China economically and to restore US leadership across the region. U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo says the long-awaited plan aims to make Indo-Pacific countries outside of China more attractive as manufacturing hubs. The White House said the countries in the pact represented 40% of the world's GDP. China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi hit out at the U.S. plans for the Indo-Pacific region, saying attempts to contain China are bound to fail. Ahead of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, the International Monetary Fund warned about the costs of moving away from globalization. IMF officials said globalization tripled the size of the worldwide economy and lifted 1.3 billion people out of extreme poverty. But since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in late February, 30 countries have imposed restrictions on trade in food, energy and other goods. IMF chief Kristalina Georgieva said the costs of further disintegration would be enormous across countries and people at every income level would be hurt. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by John Schofield at Tempus Investment and Sunil Kashap from FinMet. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. On Wall Street on Monday, US stocks closed higher following seven weeks of losses. The S&P 500 rallied 1.9% to 3,974, with all 11 sectors closing higher. On Friday, the benchmark index briefly fell into a bear market, down more than 20% from its recent high. The Dow added 618 points, or 2%, to end the day at 31,880. The end of last Friday's session marked the Dow's first eight-week losing streak since May 1923, near the height of the Great Depression. The Nasdaq Composite Index added 1.6% to 11,535. Overall, stocks were led higher by the financial sector. Shares of JP Morgan Chase jumped 6.2% higher after the bank gave improved guidance for its core lending business, saying it would benefit from loan growth and rising interest rates. Standout stocks today were the monkeypox vaccine makers, most specifically Geovax Labs, which is up 300% in the last three days. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index climbed 1.25%. The UK's FTSE 100 jumped 1.7% higher. 
Hong Kong stocks closed lower on Monday following a mixed close on Wall Street. The Hang Seng fell 247 points or 1.2% to 20,470 by the end of the day, losing nearly half of Friday's 3% rally following the record reduction in China's five-year loan prime rate on Friday. The Hang Seng Tech Index tumbled 2.5%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite recovered from losses of 0.6% to close flat at 3,147. The market was down in the morning on concerns that Beijing may be moving towards a Shanghai-style lockdown. AAC Technologies slumped almost 7% after index compiler Hang Seng Index's company said it will be removed from the Hang Seng Index on June the 13th following a quarterly review. And shares of electric vehicle maker Xpeng dropped 6.5% ahead of its first quarter earnings release. After the close, the Guangzhou-based company reported revenue stood at 7.4 billion yuan for the quarter in line with forecasts, but the net loss more than doubled to 1.7 billion yuan. That's about 25.5 billion US dollars because of supply chain disruptions caused by China locking down major cities. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is up 0.8% at $113.69 a barrel. Natural gas shot up by 9%, back near multi-decade highs. Gold rose 0.4% to $1,857 an ounce. And the US 10-year Treasury bond yield rose 7 basis points to 2.86%. The US dollar continued its recent slide, falling almost 1% to a one-month low. The euro rose 1.2% against the US currency to just under $1.07 after European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde signalled the end of negative interest rates in the eurozone by September. The Japanese yen is at 127.84 versus the dollar. Sterling is trading at $1.25.5 and 9 Hong Kong dollars and 87 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.66 against the greenback in offshore markets this morning. And Bitcoin is slightly higher at $29,100. Around Asian stocks, uh, the SX200 in Australia is flat. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is down about 0.1%. The Cosby in South Korea off about a quarter of a percent. Looks like a flat open for the Hang Seng later on this morning. Times 8.09 and a half on Money Talk. On this Tuesday morning, let's join our guests over in our Queensway studio. We have John Schofield, Managing Director at Tempest Investment. Morning to you, John. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Sunil Kashap, who is Director at FinBet. Morning, Sunil. Morning. Um, on Monday, whilst in Tokyo, President Biden unveiled his administration's new 13-nation US-led economic organisation in Asia, which is called the Indo-Pacific Economic Forum. It's part of a plan to counter China economically and to restore US leadership across the region. US Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo says the long-awaited plan aims to make Indo-Pacific countries outside of China more attractive as manufacturing hubs. And President Biden said the 12 countries in the Asia-Pacific region had joined the IPF, which covers supply chains, digital trade, clean energy and anti-corruption efforts. The Japanese Prime Minister said that he would sign up for the IPEF, but he had not given up hope on convincing his US counterpart to rejoin the successor to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. 
And the countries in the pact are Australia, Brunei, India, Indonesia, Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, as well as the US. And those countries represent about 40% of the world's GDP. I'm John and Sunil. I've been looking at this. Um, I'm still not clear what exactly is the IPEF and what, what it offers its members. Do you have any ideas and can enlighten us a bit? Um, yes, well, I think it's sort of deliberately, uh, loosely uh, phrased at the moment. Um, you know, it's fairly modest, um, uh, modest uh, ambitions not to try and do... Uh, do too much at once. I think uh, the president emphasised it's not a free trade agreement type of idea. Much more looser framework for for uh, enhancing dialogue. And I think to some extent it's probably reversing some of the damage uh, Trump did. Um, you know, shooting off in various directions and managing to upset all, all parties, mm. including China. Um, another thing I was quite interested to see was that um, there's talk now coming that. Um, Biden, uh, the Biden presidency might uh, reverse the ch uh, tariffs on, on imports from China, um, which I think would be, you know, that sort of counterbalances the, the narrative, I think. The, uh, the tariffs are uh, clearly counterproductive, mm. and um, uh, in my view, and it's probably in the U.S. self-interest given, uh, you know, the inflationary impact of those tariffs, so to get, one, get, get something out. Seems to be more uh, of a political to the economic one, doesn't it? I, I think it's a combination of both, uh, Peter. I think, uh, you know, on the, just focusing on the economic front, I think, you know, clearly the experience of the last two or three years has shown um, players in the big uh, economies like Japan, US, etc., that um, they were very much exposed to China as far as supply chain and manufacturing mm. was concerned. And I think this is a uh, an attempt to create some sort of counterweight or some kind mm. of... Um, Op alternative to having uh, all your eggs in one basket. It, it seems, though, that if you look at um, what the benefits are, it, it doesn't get. It, there's no easier route to trade with the U.S. There's no reductions in tariffs. There doesn't seem to be an awful lot of incentive for people to join it. I know twelve nations have, but not an awful lot of benefits from it, are there? I, yeah. I guess it's more of a signal that the government uh, supports its companies. Uh, to look elsewhere from China in terms of uh, manufacturing. Mm. Um, having said that, I, I think you know it's important to point out that it's not easy. Um, the the fact is that China is uh, extremely well uh, structured in terms of the network of suppliers, etc. And just talking anecdotally to people who who have manufacturing facilities in China, they say that you know uh, even if you look at Vietnam, or Cambodia, or Bangladesh, it's not easy. To, to replicate the, the mm. quality mm. and the, the kind of network uh, ecosystem that, that exists in China. You don't have the same size population, do you? The well-educated workforce, it's, it's not so easy mm. to find that elsewhere out of China. Exactly. And, and even, you know, people have said Vietnam is, is full to capacity now. They, can't, they don't have enough people, they don't have the infrastructure uh, to support more manufacturing facilities in the short term. The this deal, it covers supply chains, digital trade, clean energy, anti-corruption efforts, the US says. If that's what it is, and if that's what it wants, I'm wondering why doesn't the US just join uh, the CPTPP? That, that, that's sort of like the, uh, the, the follow-on, if you like, from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It could have all of those things by being a member of that. We, we don't need a new trade organisation, do we, to do that? Well, I think, uh, obviously, the US view is... Uh 
is different. I think I think the idea here is to to start small and and you know gradually see how how the momentum develops uh, and get away from just this pure tra the, the the FTA the TPP is purely transactional you know mm. to trade offs between you know different trade deals between yeah, the various like countries I, th I think this has a more of a sort of long term strategic kind of uh, feel to it it's more symbolic, I think, uh, mm. into just saying that, look, mm. we're all together, how yeah. can we work together? The TPP and other pacts would, would create mm. um, some hard obligations on, on mm. uh, companies in the U.S. and in terms of import tariffs, mm. etc. And so that, that's, I think, that's too far for U.S. to go mm. right now. They'd just like to create a, a, a common framework for the time mm. being, saying, look, let's talk and let's create a dialogue. We, we seem to have the, now all these overlapping competing trading mm. blocks, don't we? We've got the CPTPP mm. um, and, and uh, 11 of the 13 countries uh, in the IPF are also part of the, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, the RECEP. Uh, we've also got the Belt and Road Initiative. We've got the Digital Economy um, Partnership. Um, we seem to have all these different blocks now. The only thing that seems to define them is whether China's in them or not. And uh, APEC as well, I think. Mm, and APEC, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But, but does it mean, do you think countries are going to be forced to take sides? Is, is that what the US is trying to do here? Well, you've got a sort of menu here of different options, haven't you? You mm. can kind of uh, fine each country can sort of fine tune its its own strategy, um, you know, put more or less emphasis on its involvement with these different groups. Um, but yeah, it's a complex world. So yeah, and uh, uh, I think at the end of the day, the smaller countries don't want to alienate themselves with either block, right? Mm. So a lot of the countries are basically putting a foot in each. Uh, uh, each block, if you wish, mm. just to um, to ensure that their economies are protected. So the the problem for for countries out here in in Asia is they are here in the region along with China. The U.S. isn't. These countries do want to get along with China. They do want to trade with China. They do want to develop uh, supply chains with China. The IPEF doesn't seem to recognise that. Um, well, you know, in, in the, the long term. Uh, um, maybe it will come to include China if you're if you're mm. an optimistic. Um, uh, just going back to the point on on the supply chains, um, I was into the comments on Apple. Um, I hadn't appreciated that ninety percent of their global production is in China. Yeah, uh, and so they, they want to diversify it now, don't they? A bit they do. They, they have been doing a little bit. Um, but one of the comments coming from from their chief executive was that they yes they need to um, they need to get their suppliers to move stuff into, you know, move move production facilities into these countries like Vietnam and India mm. first and, yeah. before they can move their own. Exactly. And so I think the, the interesting thing is what's, what they'll, what's evolving is probably it'll be the same Chinese manufacturers who will just be moving facilities and, and opening a sort of, you know, a more of a BCP kind of a, um, mm. environment, so having a second option in case you have further lockdowns, you have other issues in terms of supply chains. So, in essence, the, the suppliers may not change. It'll just be the location of the supply that'll change. Mm. I, I'm, I'm wondering if, you know, the U.S. needs to change track here. Maybe China is right when it says that, you know, efforts to try and counter it economically are going to fail. What, what really needs to happen, isn't it? Is the, the, and it's not really in here. How do you mend bridges with China? How do you improve the trading relations, reduce tariffs, engage economically? Is, is that what's missing here? 
I, I think it's, uh, I mean, there's no doubt that uh, the world will be a better place if, if the two get along better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, what you say is right that it, you know it's it's high time that they sat down and 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 discuss this across the table of course uh, the president's comments uh, overnight haven't really helped the discussion uh, but clearly that's you know that's the way they should progress because it's it's in their mutual benefit to sit down and 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 figure out ways in which they can get along better Okay, let's switch our attention to global markets. First of all, in the US, we've had seven weeks of declines now um, in US stocks. That's the longest uh, period of declines for um, about 20 years, um, almost. I'm starting to hear the R word being talked about now a lot more than interest rate rises. In other words, recession. Um, Is that what uh, markets are fearful of now, that maybe these central banks are going to tighten us into recession? Um, well, there may or may not be a, a, a recession. Um, in, let's, let's stick with the U.S. Um, uh, at the moment, the uh, you know the, the economy is fine. The job situation is 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 fine. But we started to see some of these, um, you know, the re- retail sales uh, problems. Some of the, the the retailers are having um, showing that slowing down. So I think um, um, you know a mild recession. Later this year um, is 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 possible, but the uh, hysteria on interest. I mean, we've got um, um, Roger Bootle, the UK economist, uh, who I used to work with many years ago, uh, commented that you know we're getting hysterical about one percent interest rate. We have one percent <laughs> interest rates. He yeah. said it's. it's it's well, it's more about and, where and they and might get to, isn't it? After that one percent, they might get to three, four, maybe even five percent. Well, um, he, he's pointing out, and I, and I frankly agree with him that um, interest rates need to need to move just to normalise the situation, remove this um, this bubble, um, the post um, mm. post COVID uh, bubble. Um, need to get to two point five to three percent. Um, of course, we're already more or less there in the, at the longer end of the yield curve, as I pointed out last time. I mean, with, yeah. with ten-year yields around three percent. Um, uh, in fact, there, there seems to be a pause in the market at the moment. They seem, to, you know, we've got more stability in the in the bond market. So, um, I think in the short term there will be a bit of a a bit of a rally in 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 stocks. But I don't think we're 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 through this by any means yet. Yeah, and it's interesting how <laughs> the, the the discussion has changed, right? Just if last six months they were talking about interest rates and then inflation, and now suddenly everyone's stopped talking about that and they've started talking about recession. So mm. I think it's a bit, yeah. it's overdone. I think, you know, we just have to give it time and let the interest rate hikes come in over time, let it get, re- get it reflected into the economy, look at what happens to inflation, mm-hmm. and then you can start looking at growth and saying, oh, you know, growth is slowing down and we're moving towards recession. Mm-hmm. I think people are getting way ahead of themselves. Um, the first, the most important thing is to get uh, inflation under control and to see whether the interest rate hike mechanism is effective enough to do that. Well, what do you make of these movements that we're seeing in the US bond markets at the moment. The the 10-year Treasury yield, it it seems 3% seems to be the cap for it at the moment. But we're getting enormous moves. You get 10 basis points up the next day, 10 basis points down. What's going on? Yes, I mean, just the the markets are are obviously generally have been going through a a volatile phase. But it's nothing like the extreme volatility we saw in, you know, 2008 or or, or things like that. So it's quite quite interesting. 
um, and the the liquidation, if you call it that, the the decline in the in the stock markets, the S and P five hundred and so on, has been been fairly orderly. I mean, obviously you get heightened volatility, three percent swings, uh, two to three yeah. percent swings from time to time, but. Um, on the other hand, it's been more of a steady, uh, steady decline, um, and maybe now it's time for a pause and a rethink. I think what you're seeing right now is 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 two camps with very strong views, right? So you have the the camp which says recession's coming, so therefore it, it shouldn't be going that high, and then you've got the camp saying no, 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 first focus on inflation, and so uh, you know you need to get the interest rates higher, and so that's getting reflected. So that's why you're seeing this volatility mm. up and down. And the, and the deterioration in the economic growth story, it's starting to get picked up in corporate earnings now. We've been seeing that in the retail sector, haven't we? Presumably that's what's unnerving stock investors. Right. Yes, the picture's quite patchy, though. Um, as, as, as you pointed out earlier, you know, JP Morgan, for example, is uh, looking forward to um, mm. stronger earnings on the back of higher interest rates, you know, um, a normalization of the operation of the, of the banking system. <laughs> that's a benefit. Right. Okay. Well, thank you both very much. You heard that John Schofield, Managing Director at Tempest Investments, Sunil Kashap, who's Director at FinMet. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. The Times 8.24 on the phone from Tokyo is journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Good morning, Peter. So you have President Biden with you in Tokyo at the moment. He's launched his new economic pact, the IPEF. Can you tell me, because um, I'm trying to understand a bit more about this, what exactly it is and, and why J well, Japan, I suppose, has to be in it. It's been launched in Tokyo, but what, what does it get from it? I think mostly this is about trolling China. I think in many mm -hmm. ways it's about Biden reminding China that the U.S. has not ceded uh, the Pacific uh, to Asia's biggest economy. And I think, you know, when President Biden took office, there were a lot of hopes that he would re-enter TPP. You know, Donald Trump, his predecessor, pulled out of TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. People hoped Biden would re-enter. He hasn't. So I think he's taking a kind of moneyball approach. This is the Michael Lewis book about baseball from years ago, where you try to take a kind of limited budget and a disparate group of players, and you recreate something great in the aggregate. And I think in many ways, Biden is trying to recreate the energy of TPP in the aggregate with this new trade framework, if you will. The problem is that it's not very, it's not very clear what the mechanisms are for enforcement, what the triggers are. So what you have is something that's more about headlines, and I think more about trolling China than mm. anything that's about to change the economic layout uh, in Asia. You've, you've come to the same conclusion as me, that this is more of a political pact than an economic pact. And if, if you want to get the limited, yeah. ba uh, if the US wants the limited benefits that you get from that, you know, in supply chains, clean energy, they might as well just go and join the CPTPP, might they? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I think, you know, also in some ways you can argue that this shows a bit of the weakness of Biden's hand back home. One of the reasons why he's doing this kind of uh, trade pact in name only is because he knows that back in Congress uh, he'll get very little uh, support, certainly from Republicans. And I think even his own party is worried about joining big trade deals that would be perceived as, you know, sort of you know, handouts to Asian economies, but also corporate America. 
And so, you know, Biden is doing what he can. It's kind of, I, I think of this as a kind of economic uh, executive order, if you will, mm. that comes out of the White House. That said, I mean, it is significant. I mean, it is significant that Biden did this in Tokyo. That can't make Xi Jinping very happy. Mm. And I think that a lot of this has been overshadowed by his comments about Taiwan. But I do think this is the U.S.'s way of reminding Xi Jinping that, you know, hey, we're still here. So does this mean also that Fumio Kishida now has got to take stronger steps to support the U.S. in the Asia-Pacific region? It's really got to show its cards now. Well, I think that he's already done that. I think, you know, the relationship of the Shinzo Abe government was not with the U.S., it was with Donald Trump, and that didn't work out very well. I think Prime Minister Kishida is looking for a longer-lasting relationship with U.S. institutions, Biden included. And I think when you look at the way that the comments coming out of Biden here in Tokyo about Japan's security pacts, about Japan's economic priorities, I think certainly Japan is taking a deep breath and saying, thankfully, the U.S. is, is on our side again. It, the U.S. is acting a little bit less uh, mercantilist than it did during the Trump years. And, you know, mm-hmm. for Kishida, I think he is getting some deliverables here. And, you know, he certainly has the bragging rights of you know, looking at his party and saying, you know, when, Donald, when, when, uh, when Joe Biden is lashing out of China, he's doing it in Tokyo. Interesting. So, so what does Japan make then of um, President Biden's comments yesterday in Tokyo that he would defend, the U.S. would defend uh, Taiwan if it was attacked militarily? Was that a gaffe? Well, frankly, I'm surprised by the, by the reaction to it because this is really no different from what Bill Clinton was saying in the 1990s, Madeleine Albright was saying in the 1990s. I don't think anyone doubted that the George W. Bush administration would have Taiwan's back. I think the only reason why this is interesting is because the Donald Trump years were so disorienting for Asia. I think many mm. people realized or felt that Donald Trump would sell out Taiwan in a second if it would get Ivanka Trump a better trade, you know, trade relationship for selling her bags in China. So I think in, in many ways this is a return to the understanding of the pre-Trump years. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily think anyone thinks the U.S. is about to send aircraft carriers to the, you know, to the Taiwan Strait. But I do think this is, uh, this is Biden reminding China once again that when you look at how we're operating and the U.S. is operating in Ukraine, uh, China should act accordingly. Isn't, isn't, um, well, what's Japan's position on, uh, on Taiwan then? Does it support the U.S. Uh, in a similar way? Well, J- Japan certainly wants a status quo. But Japan does like the idea that, you know, Taiwan is a, is a proxy. And th- this issue is just really about the U.S. and Japan reminding China that we're not ceding Asia to you, we're not ceding the future to you. And, you know, we can roll our eyes and, you know, say to the extent that the, the, the horse has left the barn, so to speak, on that. But I think, you know, from Japan's standpoint, it is good for them to have the president of the U.S. in Tokyo this week reminding the world that Japan and the U.S. stand committed to, in some ways, prod China to act uh, as more as a global stakeholder than just a shareholder. Isn't this all sad, though, because you know, the, uh, the whole focus of this visit seems to be on security issues and on, um, on countering China. It doesn't seem to have addressed at all some of the key economic issues, like how to mend bridges with China, how to improve trading relations, how to reduce tariffs and engage economically. There's no sense at all of engagement here. Isn't it a big missed opportunity? that could have maybe brought China and the U.S. a bit closer together? You're right about that, but I'm sitting here listening to you trying to remember the last time one of these international 
groupings, one of these, these international summits really achieved anything other than a communique. You think about the APEC process, you think about the ASEAN process, you think about G7 meetings, G20 meetings. It's great mm-hmm. that these leaders get together, but I really can't remember the last time that markets woke up on a Monday morning and said, wow, that's interesting, that's good news. Um, yeah. So I think it's sort of par for the course, unfortunately. It's where the world is at the moment. Okay, William, thank you very much. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in Japan right now, the Nikkei 225 is down 0.4%. Over in Australia, the SX200 just a touch, touch lower. The Cosby in South Korea is down about 0.4%. Looks like it's going to be a flat open for the Hang Seng later on this morning. Do please join me again tomorrow morning. We'll have all the business and finance updates for you at 8 o'clock on Radio 3. Coming up after the news next is COVID updates with Jim Gord and Ada Wong. The weather forecast for today, mainly cloudy with a few showers. The maximum temperature will be around 27 degrees. A few showers in the next few days. It's going to be hot over the weekend. It's 24 degrees right now and it's 94% relative humidity. Just gone 8.31. Here's Andy Shirosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. Beijing has warned that no one should underestimate its resolve in defending national sovereignty, hitting back at President Biden's vow to defend Taiwan if it's attacked. Foreign Ministry spokesman Wang Wenbin told a press briefing that Taiwan was an inalienable part of Chinese territory. He said the Taiwan issue was purely an internal affair and warned against meddling by external forces. Mr. Wang said Beijing had no room for compromise or concessions on issues involving core interests such as sovereignty and territorial integrity. Mr. Biden made the comments at a press conference together with the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. A Russian diplomat has quit over his country's conflict with Ukraine. Boris Bondarev, a counselor at Russia's mission to the United Nations in Geneva, said he'd never been more ashamed of Russia as when it sent its troops across the border. In Moscow, the BBC's Steve Rosenberg has more. Mr. Bondarev described Russia's military offensive as not only a crime against the Ukrainian people, but also the people of Russia. Since President Putin launched in February what he calls his special military operation in Ukraine, there have been few public resignations from Russian state institutions. But Mr Bondarev explained that after 20 years of being a diplomat, he could no longer share in what he called this bloody, witless and absolutely needless ignominy. Meanwhile, the UN's World Food Programme has described Russia's blockade of Ukraine's ports as a declaration of war on global food security. Issuing the warning at the World Economic Forum in Davos, the executive director of the WFP, David Beasley, said it could push millions of people worldwide into famine. If we don't open those ports, you're talking about a declaration of war on global food security. It will have extraordinary consequences. We are already facing the worst worst food crisis since World War II. And when you take 400 million people that are fed by the food that comes out of Ukraine and you shut that off, and then you add on top of that fertilizer problems, droughts, food costs, fuel costs, we're looking at a hailstorm on Earth. The World Health Organization says recent outbreaks of monkeypox in non-endemic countries can be contained. A WHO expert for emerging diseases said the aim was to stop human-to-human transmission. 
Another official said the WHO did not have evidence that the virus had mutated and it tended not to change. The disease is normally only found in Africa, but more than 100 cases of monkeypox have been reported in North America and Europe in recent days. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to COVID Update. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. We'll be joined by two of our regular guests in a moment to talk about the latest developments with Hong Kong's new daily infection rate falling below 200 yesterday. And after nine on Backchat, the, the topic is uh, Australian politics with uh, Anthony Albanese leading 